and the culture executive editor at Time was like, do you have any ideas about this Crazy Rich Asians movie? And I was like, oh yeah, it's going to make tons of money. And she's like, I've never heard that. Tell me why. Hmm. I explained why, all the financial data that supported my thesis. And she's like, okay, you have the assignment. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> what am I going to do? That is Karen K. Ho, a highly respected business journalist and my favorite person to follow on Twitter. And I'm Joel Lehman. Welcome to Connection Request, episode two. Thanks for being here. Stick with me until the end for a bit of personal news. But right now, let's get to today's guest. I've been following Karen's work for years, and I'm so grateful she agreed to spend some time with me for this. She is by far my favorite follow on Twitter, not only because of how open and honest and authentic and funny she is, but also for all of the genuinely amazing advice she gives freely. She's currently a senior writer at Art News and has her master's from Columbia, and she's been publishing outlets including GQ, The New York Times, Quartz, Time, and dozens more. She is equally well known for inventing and popularizing the term doom scrolling through her wildly popular Twitter bot, which gives reminders to drink water and take breaks. She also has an adorable cockapoo named Max and works magic with Facebook Marketplace. Couple of quick housekeeping notes for today. Uh, you might hear the aforementioned dog Max barking just a little bit. I promise he's harmless and very adorable. Uh, and also we went pretty long for this interview and I could have kept talking with her for hours. So this is part one and part two is gonna drop tomorrow. In today's episode, we'll cover Karen's background, spend some time on her mega hit true crime story, chat through some of the big moments in her career so far, and also dig into imposter syndrome. In part two, we'll get into Twitter and doom scrolling, burnout and layoffs, plus a wild interaction with Bob Woodward that you won't want to miss. Here's my conversation with Karen Ho. I was born and raised in Toronto, which used to be known for famous people like Mike Myers and the Toronto International Film Festival and is now known for people like Drake or The Weeknd and I think in news it was like the Ikea monkey which was a meme at one point one of the earliest internet memes and is where many celebrities in pop culture and news people don't know that they're from Toronto which I think is very funny I did my undergraduate at the University of Toronto and so when I say U of T, people think of Texas. But what else is there? I have wanted to be a reporter since high school and was editor of my high school paper and almost went to art school, but my parents were afraid of me making money. So we can talk about that and how I made a big circle back. Before I was a reporter, I actually was a bilingual bank teller for four and a half years. And that really informed a lot of my understanding of gaps in financial literacy and personal finance. And I was able to use that experience to get a certification in securities in Canada. And that helped me get my first business journalism internship when I think I was 24 or 25. Wow. Okay. So what is it that drew you to journalism in the first place? It sounds like you've long been thinking about this career and it started in high school. What made you want to be that? So a very simple thing is that it allows you to be nosy and ask questions 
sometimes to powerful people and learn a lot and read a lot and get paid for it. And I thought that was radical because as like my family's culture, you aren't allowed to question authority. You aren't allowed to like question norms or existing practices. It's seen as disrespectful. And so this idea of an occupation was really intriguing to me. And then also that it gave me permission to contact really smart people and interview them and publish what I learned. Like I thought that was like a, a dream job or at least it was incredibly interesting to me. And I liked writing since I was very young. Makes sense. So first let's talk about your family a little bit because you brought that up. So I was just this morning reading your great true crime piece, Jennifer Pan's Revenge. Everyone should go read that, by the way, and I'll drop the link in the show notes. But there's a couple lines in there that caught my attention about your childhood and your upbringing because you're also talking about yourself quite a bit in that piece. So you're talking about your father and his expectations, and I'm just going to read a line here. You say, quote, He, your father, wanted a child who was like a trophy, something he could brag about. I suspected the achievements of his siblings and their children made him feel insecure, and he wanted my accomplishments to match theirs. I felt like a hamster on a wheel sprinting to meet some sort of expectation solely determined by him that was always just out of reach. So that's super honest and vulnerable. Can you tell me how that kind of upbringing has played out for you? And more importantly, did you manage to get off the hamster wheel? So the thing that I learned from reading a lot of magazine features, and by the way, that is my first magazine feature ever. I had never written anything longer than like print, online, anything. And I'd never done true crime. I had never written about murder. I didn't even write a lot of like personal essays. The editor was the one who was like, you have to put yourself in this story. I think in the fourth or fifth draft, he was like, we have to explain why you're the person writing this, because this was a national media story in Canada. But I think I had to explain why my approach to the story was not to portray Jennifer as like a very stereotypical villain and why there was still a level of empathy for her situation. and. The only way I could do that was to highlight in very vulnerable detail the similarities that we had growing up and the male parental expectation, especially when you are a daughter. And so the thing that I thought was, it's not rare or unusual for Asian children (laughs) to be like pushed on these hamster wheels of accomplishment. There are many essays and videos online about this phenomenon, but I think the thing that It's one thing to read about it in research or have someone else write about it, but it's another thing to explain it from a first person perspective. And then the other thing that I wanted to say was like, I had never told that to him directly. And, but I want, yeah, I had never been like, I'm very upset about how I know that this pressure that you put on me, that you compare me to your siblings kids or like in terms of this idea of am i worth bragging about to am i held in similar esteem i think we cut it from the draft because my last draft was i think eight thousand words or something but like i had a literal cousin who was a beauty pageant winner there's this phenomenon in canada and in several cities of chinese women who do these pageants and then the winners go to i think hong kong or china and then they compete 
and my cousin was a winner. And people asked me for several years afterwards when it would be my turn because she was in the newspaper and all this other stuff. And so when I put that in the story, I wanted to explain this like crushing feeling of what motivates people to do the things that they do. And also I used the word trophy very specifically because a trophy, it's seen, it's for display. And like I said, is a mark of accomplishment, but it hides a lot of the failure behind that accomplishment. And I think the other thing is there is this culture that is not unique to Chinese families, but that is related to toxic masculinity, but like having a son. And this idea that like I had not been the thing that so many men dream of having, which is having a son to carry on their family name so that they can raise that will look like them and that they can play sports with or whatnot. And I was the first, like I'm the oldest of, I have a younger sister. And so I was the first disappointment, right? My dad was the youngest of all of his siblings. And so the thing about it is like, what is it like to carry that feeling all the time? And continue to fail. How do I explain this very succinctly? It is a description of a game where you cannot win or a situation. Mm. And so for all the discussions regarding objectivity, I think people trusted me more and the story more because I was willing to explain my expertise in in that situation. But I will tell you this, I wrote that very vulnerably, failing to understand how much Americans love to read about murder and how much people love to read about murder. And I was like, oh, maybe if I get like 150,000 people to read this, like that would be more than I could ever imagine. And it became the most read story at the magazine between 2010 and 2020. It held the record for five years after it was published. Yeah. So remember, this is a Canadian city magazine. Like it is for the largest city in Canada, but that's the population of California. And it was picked up by outlets like the Washington Post and the BBC. And it was translated unauthorized into other languages. And like the South China Morning Post picked it up. This is well before the way that rewrites are done even now. So in terms of small worldness, there was an intern at the Washington Post who was from the same Canadian suburb north of Toronto, and she was going to Yale semesters, right? Sorry, between summers. And she saw all of her friends on Facebook discussing this story, and she called me in Yellowknife and was like, can I talk to you about this story? And I was like, is this a prank? Like I'm in Yellowknife, a town of 20,000 where it's literally minus 35 for three and a half months and there's no 911 service. Yeah. And I'm already flabbergasted. It's the long form story of the day and then it's the long form story of the week and then all these newsletters are picking it up. Like people are tweeting about like how you have to read the story. And like I said, it is my first magazine story ever. Yeah. Pretty good starting one. And people are like spending an average of 10 minutes reading it. It had a completion rate of 84%. And it did a million page views in its first month. Wild. Insane. Like all of those pieces put together. Your first piece. Your expectations about how it was going to do. That's just 
insane. Can we say that? Like, I, that's so, unbelievable. So remember, again, it is my first magazine piece. I thought I had done so poorly that the magazine would never hire me ever again to write anything. With the piece? That's how yes. you felt about it? Yeah, because I had, the editing was really hard. I was juggling in between this, like, other full-time job in Yellowknife that I was also, like, failing yet miserably that had all sorts of other issues that were in and out of my control. And on nights and weekends, I would write. So I, I wrote this story basically on spec for three. Like first I pitched it for a year and a half or I workshopped it for a year and a half. And then I took two years basically writing it on spec, like on nights and weekends. And I would take wow. unpaid days off to go to buy court documents or visit uh Jennifer's on again, off again boyfriend in jail. And like I said, I was like, maybe 150,000 people will read it. And then to your point, like everyone in my mom's office read it because his daughter went to the same high school. People yeah. were telling me that they would go on vacation from Toronto to Brooklyn and the next table would be talking about the story. Wow. And in 2015, this means like a very different thing, right? Like I said, like Toronto doesn't have a paywall. And so that was my first big break, and I was incredibly confused. Like, the head of CBS is 48 Hours, who would eventually temporarily become the head of CBS News, flew me down to New York to discuss, like, option rights. And I was just like... I was going to ask if it was optioned. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, was optioned it? twice. Like, so 48 is, is Hours... Is anything in development? So, I like, I get an email probably, like, once a month from someone being like, we would love to develop this for Netflix. And sure. I'm always like... Maybe, like, sometimes I, I'm hesitant to say yes because I've seen what has happened. Like, people rip it off all the time for true crime podcasts. Like, it has been mentioned on My Favorite Murder and all these. People have just read it verbatim. Mm. And if I don't grant permission, sure, I lose out on some money, but then I'm not held responsible if they super muck it up. And there are already been mm. fictional versions of it, for, like, on Oxygen, when they're like, crimes of passion or something <laughs> like that. But when people ask me, when we're talking about career-wise, why I haven't written another like true crime or a big magazine story like that, I say the economics simply don't work. I yeah. think I was paid a dollar a word, but after three and a half years, right? And then, yeah. and that was in 2015 in Canadian yeah. dollars. And like I said, it's a national media story. And I saw lots of other people who got like book deals and wrote books or other stuff like that but it was just one of those things where I was like I don't know if a story like this will be explained from someone who understands it mm. the way that I do while still being journalistically rigorous and yeah. the thing that I thought was really interesting was like I referenced there was a Wall Street Journal reporter who wrote about the Boston bombers and that family and I thought a lot about Jay Caspian King's work covering Korean mass shooters in the US mm. And so I was like, I know that there's a template. I know how to write about this without people being like, like I read a lot of terrible internet comments before they were advising you not to do that. And it was like, I think people see that I have what I would describe as like non-vampiric intentions, right? Like I'm not out to yeah. make a buck. 
Yeah, thank you for going so into detail. I think I could spend a whole podcast interviewing just about that piece itself. So everyone should go and check that out. I'm curious, so some of the big moments in your career like that, like the time cover story, which I mentioned in the intro, um, doom scrolling, which we'll get to in a little bit. I'm just curious, those kind of big moments, it sounds to me like sometimes those can be detached from specific career progression or money or that kind of stuff. I don't know, I'll let you correct record, but like what have some of those big moments done for you or meant for you or felt like as you've been living through them? As an Asian woman, like I think they, I look at them and I think about them a lot in terms of proving to myself and to other people that my career is not a fluke. Because I think it's really Mm. easy when you are not a white man named Steve or any other equivalent that you're still judged on past performance rather than potential. And I read a lot of business management research and it's like the New York Times pay performance disparity report and I Mm. see it. And so it gets harder for people to doubt me when I have those things because I can point Mm. to them and say, do you have a time cover? Or I think it was also like, the thing that the time cover and the Jennifer Pan story have is that I work really hard to be comprehensive and rigorous in a way that is, because I'm so online that I can anticipate what is the possible criticism from potential hiring managers as well, online readers, like even before they do. And so the thing, because I know what it's like to read something and be like, this was a waste of time. And so the thing that I think is interesting is because I'm hyper-conscious of just systemic discrimination on the basis of race or gender or my immigration status, like having those things just makes it harder for people to write me off for Hmm. the things that I have achieved or the things that I accomplished or things like if I'm asking for more money or if I'm asking for funding to go to a journalism conference. I think it's just data. Like it's really... Hmm difficult, hard to dismiss data. Like the thing about those things is even when I describe them several years later, people are like, I know exactly what you're, like anyone who's worked in online media knows what 84% completion rate of 5,600 word story means, or people can visually think about what a time cover looks like, even if they haven't seen the actual picture. And so there's that, and then there's things like, there is power in the stuff that I have done. Like I I have come across doubters or haters in my career for sure, or just people who, like I said, didn't see what I was capable and my potential. But then there are other people who, like the foundation who granted me my scholarship for graduate school, they Mm. were just like, It's a no-brainer for us, like, that we would give you this money because we've been doing this for 10 or 15 years and we've seen a lot of applications and we could just tell you would be fine if we gave you this money within five years, like, you would do something really interesting. And I was like, oh, okay, like, I'm going to write that down and look at it when I'm having a bad day because I think when you go through, like I said, that really vulnerable description that gives you this... I would say sub-optimal level of self-confidence. Then you go into an industry that is like rife with people ready to tear you down or 
has been rife with, I would say, issues regarding insensitive feedback or I think like there has almost been, it's been a badge of pride that editors have been like mean, right? In their feedback, that they don't give compliments and stuff like that. And so I remember that. And then I just remember, like I have the time cover printed out on a huge poster and I have it above my desk because like no one can take that away for the rest of my life, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And I'm so glad that you do, because I would really hope that you do. We were talking before we started rolling, and you have touched on some themes about imposter syndrome. It seems to me like, at least at various points along the way, I think even just given the fact that you thought that story, the true crime piece, wasn't going to do well, I'm just curious, is imposter syndrome something that you struggle with? And if so, other than if you don't have a time cover to print out and hang on your wall, how do you deal with it? So I look at data, like because I covered economics. And so data makes it really hard for people to just explicitly doubt what you're saying, right? So I use data in my own life. Like I trap my sleep, like I I look at the effect of my diet on my well-being. And so when it comes to imposter syndrome, like now we have access to data that makes it important, especially for women and minorities, like when we're talking about performance reviews. So I have data on things like how popular my stories are doing online or Mm. the feedback that I'm getting, the discussions that I've seen of my work on Twitter or Facebook. Then it's also about, I go through a list. Like I have both a a folder in my email inbox of like positive feedback I've received and screenshots of tweets when people have talked to me about my work. And then Mm. also like there are people I look up to that I read long before I started writing magazine features that have read my work and consider me a peer and I was like these people didn't have to do this they're not just doing this to be nice they are doing this because like they think of me as a person with interesting things to say and they wouldn't talk like they could talk to anybody like even the number of times I've been interviewed in the last three years not just about Twitter but about other things I was like, they could call anybody. And the fact that they call me repeatedly is like helpful to my imposter syndrome for sure. Mm. Like for like pure data metrics. Like I remind myself sometimes that like I wrote an article in 2019 about my experience with the US immigration system. And I have counted alone that it has referred at least 50 successful cases to my immigration lawyers like generating at wow. least like a quarter million dollars in legal fees, if not more, like on a conservative basis. Wow. Talk about <laughs> impact. That's mind-blowing. That's amazing. I have yeah. done things like that or, you know, like yeah. I have successfully advised several Columbia journalism students like every year what else I had to track like my citations for that time story for my immigration application so I saw Mm. all of that um other times regarding imposter syndrome like I called out a Canadian telecom company that's also a major media company six years before they unfairly fired their national anchor and I was like hey (laughs) I was really early in talking about how even though it does an international annual campaign on mental health, it's a toxic place to work for these specific reasons and this reporting. And so that has helped, like in terms of my, like I still, I also throw myself into situations that make it 
that that challenge that practice like I'm covering the art industry right now I know a lot Mm. about business I'm terrified about standing next to a major art gallery executive and not recognizing their face like Mm. um, sure because it has happened to me before but I think there's also a humility to me being like excuse me could you tell me your name and like what your profession is and if I can quote you in an upcoming story I have done that repeatedly right like I described to you before we started rolling that it happened there is a repeated humbling when I started covering mining in 2015 and when I covered American media at the Columbia Journalism Review in 2017 and then when I covered finance and economics for courts in 2020 during the pandemic and then when I covered sustainability last year for Insider, like those are all very different beats. Yeah. And it was really painful to, like when I was covering economics, I was trying to get scoops against people who'd been covering economics for 10 or 15 years, like at mm-hmm. the Washington Post or Yahoo Finance and Bloomberg. And I was constantly being like, <laughs> trying to convince people to talk to me or answer my phone calls. And now with the art industry, I'm like, I am figuring out different ways of doing it. But like I said, I am continually learning, like I'm reading all the time. And there are things I'm figuring out that I can apply what I've done before to, but I'm still repeatedly being humbled by what I don't know. But at the same time, I think that's important because it would be better for me to assume that I need someone to tell me what's going on and double check rather than yeah. have a level of what what we understand now with Elon Musk to be like unassailable white guy confidence and just be like, no, <laughs> this is the fact. Like, I don't need to fact check this. Let's go. And it, it takes a lot more time and effort, but I think it means that more often than not, like some of my work has really continued to be impactful and read because I was able to come at it from an angle of not having covered it for so long, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that's, to me, that feels like an asset rather than a liability. Same thing with you putting some of yourself into your stories. To me, I would argue from the outside, that's part of why you found the success that you have. You've been so generous of your time. just want to ask you, I think, one more question, which is, with the benefit of hindsight, how much of your career thus far has been planned and intentional and did you, did you have ever since you were in high school did you have I want to do this than this or how much of it has been organic and then I guess what does the future hold and how much of a plan is there going forward okay I'm gonna be really honest a lot of my career has been chaotic hmm. and I would say that there have been certain periods where I was definitely planned and strategic so my first job out of college was, I'm not kidding, in the communications of the very college, the communications department. And within a couple of months, I realized that I wanted to be a reporter. I met the great graphic journalist, Joe Sacco. He came to campus and he said, if you're in a job and you know what you want to do instead, like it is the worst thing. I think he worked at an actuary firm. And I was like, oh, I really want to be a reporter. If I don't try to be a reporter, I'm going to wonder about it for the rest of my life. And then my editor in the comms department was like, we're going to help you get there. Like, we're going to... Cool. You're going to write your articles while you're here at this job. And then you're going to figure it out. And then I... Wow. 
backpacked four and a half months through South America because I figured as a reporter I wouldn't get that time off. I had never done like a gap year or gone on vacation on my own. Then I learned Spanish and I came back and I did the Canadian securities course, passed it, and that got me a eight-week, probably illegal internship at the financial section of the National Post back when it was still like super robust, but it paid me $150 a month which is probably illegal. Like I expensed yeah. more and got more money for gas. And like when I would go on assignments, then what I was actually paid, but it gave me an email address and it gave me a phone number hmm. associated with this national newspaper. And yeah. the Financial Post had existed for over a hundred years. And then I wrote some great clips. I got a full-time job that paid me $30,000 and I didn't know how to negotiate. And then I got laid off within a year. And then that goes into the chaotic part of my career, which is just like, constantly trying to figure out what to do next long periods of unemployment or freelance struggles i knew after i got laid off i used the severance to go to my first asian american journalism association conference in new york (laughs) where i found out that if i wanted to work in the u.s i need to get a work visa but very few places would sponsor work visa so i was like maybe i need to get into grad school i did Mm. one year at a at the business news network tv news station discovered i didn't want to be an on-air reporter or on the track to becoming a producer and figured out that I wanted to write while doing that magazine story on Jennifer Pan. Moved to Yellowknife, discovered I did not like living in a small town that was minus 35 for three and a half months of the year. Left after nine and a half months after the Jennifer Pan story had published and had applied to grad school. Then the Globe and Mail reached out to me and was like, hey, would you like to work with us in some capacity. And I was like, "Mm." (laughs) and then I ended up at 29 getting a summer internship and finding out the same week that I had won a full scholarship, including stipend to go to Columbia for grad school. And then didn't have anything planned after grad school, except try to find a job that would sponsor me. Sure. Fell in love with magazine journalism, like a total chump and wanting to write features did my fellowship at CJR, which would not sponsor anyone. Wrote some goofy magazine stories that got me on the radar of Time. Time was like, hey, before you yeet out of the country, would you like to write about this movie? (laughs) And I was like, the first email that I saw, I thought they were pranking me. And so they emailed me again and they were like, hey, we weren't sure if you saw our other email. Oh my gosh. (laughs) It's serious. Like I still tell that story. And the way I got on their radar was I wrote for very little money, a profile on B.D. Wong for GQ. I was like, why hasn't he gotten like a New Yorker-style profile of his entire career? Great piece. And I was like, I'm going to write it. And then, just like you said, I was like, I'm going to put in there that he opened up to me because I told him that I'm also queer hmm. and that my editor is Asian. And he's like, I've never had that before. And hmm. I was like, that's weird. <laughs> You've been in the business for 30 years and this hasn't happened before? That's yeah. really sad. Yeah. And then I wrote it. I wrote... 2,000 words and I just swung as hard as I could and it went viral and the culture executive editor at time was like do you have any ideas about this crazy rich Asians movie and I was like oh yeah it's gonna make tons of money and she's like I've never heard that tell me why Hmm. I explained why all the financial data that I supported my thesis and she's like okay you have the assignment and I was like oh my god (laughs) what am I gonna do I had to literally fly back to Canada before filing the drafts for that story because my one year post grad school work visa expired Mm. 
had to apply for my own work visa to come back to the country. And then I made less than $20,000 freelancing in 2019, decided in 2020 that I needed a full-time job. And then six weeks into working at Quartz, 40% of the company was laid off. And then this year alone, I lost two jobs within five months. I was laid off from the second job after five weeks. And oh my it gosh. took me nine months from leaving New York City to come back to New York for my current job. And so planning is difficult. Like yeah. the thing about even with art news, like I love magazines and I love culture reporting, but they reached out to me and I had a lot of conversations with other people being like, I didn't plan to be, if you told me even six months ago that I would be like, I work facing the New York Public Library in Bryant Park, like these iconic places. Mm. And I go to the Rolling Stone floor to do like phone calls because we don't have a phone booth in our floor. Mm. I could not have planned that. But it makes sense because I've had a lifelong interest in art. Yeah. And I know about the difference between Baroque and Renaissance art. And now I cover a lot of super rich people and how they use tax loopholes to buy yeah. and sell art. But some of my coworkers used to work in galleries or they studied art history in undergrad. And the thing that I think is interesting is figuring out, like you said, in retrospect, like I took a class in undergrad on movies. Like I had to, it was, I think, horror and thrillers and romantic comedies. Mm. And then 10 years later, I used what I learned about what makes a successful romantic comedy when I was writing that time story. Mm. And so the thing that when it comes to like, like I would love to have, I would love to be in a company for like, like one of my senior editors at Art News has been at the company for 10 years, like through different owners. Yeah. Like I know people who work at Thomson Reuters or AP or the CBC for 10, 15, 25 years. Yeah. And I have never had that. Yeah. And... But the thing that I've realized is like my work experience is interesting and diverse enough now that a financial institution wouldn't, I could probably get a job in their communications and marketing department. It is unfortunate that because of my immigration status, like I often need someone to sponsor me to stay in the United States. But the thing that is interesting is just at this point, going back to your question about imposter syndrome and like data, it's just like, even if. I meet new people and they don't follow me on Twitter. Like I can say something that they're just like, oh, you're that person. Mm. Like Mm -hmm. I have met total strangers through, like I said, Twitter or someone else who are not in journalism. And they're just like, like I remember I saw another PhD student on Twitter who was originally from Toronto and I think he is at Princeton. And then he mentioned that he was Vietnamese. And I was like, oh, I read about Vietnamese person once. And they were like, I sent that story to 50 people. <laughs> and I was like, oh, <laughs> like yeah. stuff like that. Or like I've met people where they were like, your immigration story for Vox. We send that around in our group chat. It's in our welcome guide for like new people who've just moved. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, then it helped them explain to family and friends, like the process of go- applying yeah. to it themselves. Yeah. Like for international journalists who are like in grad school, not just at Columbia. Yeah. And I was like, oh, like that's really, like I said, I just think of myself as a person. I know I'm not a nobody anymore, but like I buy groceries at Trader Joe's. Like I, I'm worried about inflation like anybody else. And then 
now that we're doing in-person events again, I was like, oh, like I have a public profile. Like mm. I'm that person that I used to be at the beginning of my career or when I, before I moved to New York. Yeah. And I was like, like I remember the, I went to a, the Asian American Journalism Conference in 2019. I skipped 2018 because of the time story. And I met the time reporter who had to do the one year retrospective of how the movie did. Mm. And he and a bunch of other younger journalists queued up to talk to me. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> or my friend Ben started randomly, like several years later, was like, would go up to random strangers at the AJ conference and be like, did you read that story about the woman who tried to murder her parents? Karen wrote that. And he was like, I bet you we could get like a 40 or 50% success rate if we just polled random people. And I was like, that's absurd. And he was right. And I was like, this is really weird. Like, I had no idea. And so the thing about it is, don't get me wrong. Like, I would love, like, I'm too old for Livingston Awards. Like, when we think about impact, we so often measure it in, like, because I've had hiring managers ask me and they were like, oh, you didn't get a law changed or you didn't win, like, a major award or all of these other things. But to me, I already know when we're looking back career-wise. Like, I remember someone telling me that the Jennifer Pan story changed the way that he parented his daughter. Wow. And I said that once as this is my impact. Yeah. And I remember a hiring manager just like totally being unimpressed. But to me, like, yeah. if they didn't hire me for a job because of that. Might not be the I place you want to be anyway. It. I think about it like seven years later, yeah. you know, like, I would too. like the fact that I have written things. My friends tell me, or I had a friend remind me, they were like, everything that you have ever written that like people still think about and talk about wasn't at a job where you were like super jazzed about yeah or you were super excited to do and so like hmm. i think about that like i can't freelance right now because of the type of work visa that i have which is why it changes the creativity of like when i'm publishing mm. tweets or when i'm blogging and stuff sure. but i do think it's interesting when it comes to looking back at your career, especially now that I'm in the like early stage, right. <laughs> is like I think I'm really proud of the fact that, like I said, I have this assortment of impactful moments, and that despite all the things I've gone through, I'm not like a bitter or mean person. Mm. Yeah, far As, from especially it. with the name like Karen. Like I, I could be. Right? <laughs> like. I, I, I genuinely went through a period, going back to your other question about burnout, which is I did a really deep period where I was like, should I just take a corporate job at JP Morgan and yeah. just write internal communications and pull like a six figure salary and go on nice vacations and donate a lot to journalism organizations? Because so many financial writers I've seen have done that. Mm. IBM, the editor when I was at Quartz has gone to Goldman Sachs, along with two other people that I knew. And like, you see it all the time. But I was like, I think it was like, when the art news job opportunity came up, I was like, yes, I will earn less money, but I am gonna work full time at a magazine that wants me to that will encourage me to do features in like 2022 about art crime and like <laughs> and like my first press trip is to Singapore next month no yeah that's huge so the thing when we talk about careers I think an interesting thing is just being like and I've told this to other journalism students now it's like you're already doing something that doesn't pay you the most that you could get especially with like your Ivy League degree or whatnot. So what is the thing 
where if you looked back, you'd be like, I'm going to wonder about this for the rest of my life. I think Ira Glass has that famous talk about you have to have fun. You have to put something in there, like mm. a detail that's just for you. Yeah. Like when I profiled Alex Wagner, I was like, I put in this line that I was like, I'm tired <laughs> of American journalists covering Asians like we're a foreign country hmm. you know, after all this like 200 years of immigration I'm just like I'm tired of it. and they kept it in and I was like yeah that's for me then people quoted it and they saw that they were like that's that is real truth and insight like we don't know if any other media reporter would have made that observation about Alex Wagner and her job and how she's being set up for failure in yeah. the position following Rachel Maddow yeah. and so like that kind of thing when we talk about a podcast like yours, it's just, I cannot, I think asking people to predict the future, which often happens when you're hiring or when you're doing performance reviews, like where do you see yourself in several years? I'm lucky if I know what's going to happen like six months from now. Yeah. Like, and I think a lot of, a lot of the, it's right. Like I would be curious for anybody who feels confident in that after all the layoffs recently too or you know with all the acquisition like you know pmc just bought art forum and then book forum is going to close and we all saw like how upset people were about that but i think the thing that is again was it that saying about grant you the wisdom of knowing the things you can change and uh, like understanding the difference between the things you can and cannot change and like the thing with burnout again is like managing your intake of things out of your control and then when i'm advising people it's i just did this talk with journalism students it's here are the things you can control that are much more worth your time and investment and energy investing into and then also just but like fundamentally when it comes to careers like i feel much more calm knowing that it would be like I'm not, I wouldn't consider it a moral failure anymore if I didn't retire as a journalist, if that makes sense. Because mm, you've, you've done so many amazing things. You've given it a lot of time and effort and it seems like you could do lots of things and still be happy. Is that right? Am I putting words in your mouth? Well, I think it's also, I also have seen repeatedly, it's just like, I don't know if the sacrifices to retire as a journalist are worth it yeah. for people our age. Yeah, totally. Sad reality, and so, right? But yeah. just, I think that is the thing. And so, and like I said, like you and I understand like being laid off is not a moral failure. I've increasingly talked to journalists of color who have gotten, like the, there was that um, essay about the Wall Street Journal reporter who got fired at Axios basically. Mm. And he explained why it was unfair termination. And I was just like, so like data like that is increasingly showing that it's just not like, what are the, I'm trying to figure out the metaphor. Like, it's not even like a pothole or a quicksand situation. It's just like, to your point about data, it's just like, I am almost a diversity Yahtzee. The only thing I am not is a mother, but like everything else yeah. puts me at distinct disadvantage. Yeah. And and the other thing is like I read research all the time. Like I especially when I state something on Twitter, I'm often like, here's the research, here's the like paper that I'm talking about, or here's the article to cut off argument at the past. And it's just so for me, it's just like that 
calm reassurance to our experiences. It's just like there definitely is a need for social media editors, mm. but it's not worth the sacrifice for the two of us mm. in our careers for that to become the thing that we do all the time. Yeah. If that totally. makes sense. Yeah, 100%. Karen, you've given me so much time and I'm just really grateful to be able to have this conversation with you. Uh, before I let you go, where can people find you and support your work? Um, I guess like until Twitter implodes, like I tweet less, but I have a Substack, which is also problematic, but I don't charge money for it. So it's fine. And it's just Karen, K-H-O.substack.com. I'm also on Instagram, but primarily that is... So artists can reach me and where I post pictures of my dog. And I am on Twitter, unfortunately, until it basically goes the way of Neopets and every other <laughs> online platform that has become a shell of itself. And yeah, I think those are all the places right now. Um, and I just, yeah, I'm hesitant to do things like start TikTok because I yeah like the idea of putting my face and making my life like a product for consumption is uncomfortable for me. And I'm not inclined to learn video editing for YouTube. <laughs> yeah. But, and I think also like for Instagram, I'm hesitant to even post pictures of myself knowing the harassment that female reporters and yeah. reporters of color get. But those are the places. And until Twitter implodes, I will continue to send out jokes and media criticism and my very carefully couched advice yes on there. and i will be there alongside with you until the bitter end karen Keho, thank you so much oh thanks so much for having me isn't she great go follow her on twitter if you aren't already now welcome to the coda the final section of the show where i like to share a couple things in my mind and today I have some personal news. I am leaving my corporate day job at the end of the month. And despite the company changing names and ownership a few times, I've essentially been there for the past 11 years, which is more than a third of my life. It's truly wild when you think about all that has changed in my life since I first started there as an intern, uh, wearing a tie every day, if you can believe it. And while I have a bit more to share in the next couple of weeks about what's next, right now I guess I'm just feeling a few different things. I'm feeling very reflective. I really feel like I've had a lifetime of professional opportunities and challenges in that time, from traveling the globe to interviewing the Prime Minister of Canada. I just feel insanely lucky. And I'm not saying it was all flowers and parties every day, but I definitely don't take for granted everything that I've got to be part of. I'm also feeling sad to be leaving some really amazing colleagues as well as partners, vendors, customers. To all of my current colleagues, thank you. Thank you for everything and know that I'm always here if you need anything. But more than anything, I'm feeling grateful to all of the amazing people I've come into contact with over the past 11 years as part of my job and grateful for all the opportunities those people have given me. You know, it's cliche for a reason, but people really do make the difference. And I've gotten to learn from and work with some of the best. Chances are, if you're listening to this right now, you might be one of those people. So if that's you, thank you. Why you all took a chance on me, I'm still not entirely sure. But to everyone, mentors, bosses, friends, 
Thank you for everything. I'm glad we still get to be a part of each other's lives on LinkedIn and beyond. Truly, I'm grateful. Okay, that's it for today's episode of Connection Request. Don't forget, part two of my conversation with Karen will be out tomorrow. Make sure you're subscribed to the show so you don't miss it. And you can send me feedback, ideas, and questions at connect at shrugcontent.com. That's connect at shrugcontent.com. You can find that in the show notes as well. You can follow the show on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Until next time, be well, and thanks for listening. Drug content.